0: you would again uh, take out your Bible, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, and today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now, the serpent was more crafty The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear as your word is preached. Be with this, your servant. May we learn from you today. May we understand more our need for our Savior Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of the other worldviews, particularly those which reject God, cannot account for the presence of evil. They cannot account for why things are not the way that they should be. They have an ought to be, but they don't have a basis for that. And the Christian faith teaches, because, of course, the Bible teaches, that God made all things good but that human beings rebelled against their creator. In fact, uh, R.C. Sproul used to say that we are guilty of cosmic treason. Why did this happen? How did this come to pass? Why would man purposely seek to undermine the one who had made them? The question to this is found in the deception of the serpent, which promised great and wonderful things, but did not inform Adam and Eve of what would be lost. That is, fellowship with God, original righteousness, a world free from misery and suffering, and ultimately life. These were the things which are lost, contrary to the promise which Satan had given to them. What is lost was paradise. In a sense, man chose to believe the darkness and to shun the light. And this decision has had far-reaching consequences, not only for themselves, but for the whole of creation then and into the future, even into our own day. And so the scene here, uh, as the scene in chapter 2 closes, and we were left with man and woman inhabiting a paradise of the garden, a place of perfect peace and harmony as God had created it. There was no sin. There was no shame. They would have all that they could desire to have in perfect communion with their Creator. That idyllic situation is now disrupted in chapter 3 as the man and the woman and woman's obedience is challenged. And in some sense, what we read in chapter 2 tells us something of what was lost when our first parents ate of that forbidden fruit. And so now we begin in chapter 3, in verse 1, with this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And so we begin with the serpent. Now in ancient Near East, the serpent was a symbol of a number of di- different things. It was both an object of reverence and an object of disdain. And this is true even in the history of Israel. However, here it is, the, it is a symbol of evil. The evil which comes slithering quietly onto the scene. And of course, although not named here, this is Satan, the accuser. This is the devil. This is the one who is the adversary of humanity. Satan has his origin in the heavenly realm, for he is a spiritual being. He is evil and more clever than human beings. Now our text states that he was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now there is a, a wordplay here between crafty and then naked in the previous verse, which draws the reader's attention to the vulnerability of Adam and Eve. They are exposed and yet, here is this clever, evil being who's come. Satan was poised to take advantage of human weakness. And the stake is described as having been created by God, but there's no explanations given here as to the origins of evil. The narrative, though, is not concerned with that, the narrative is concerned with human sin and guilt. And of course, we know that God is himself not the author of sin, for all things were made good. But we have here this crafty and clever snake who has come to distort the Word of God. And so he said to the woman, Did God actually say? Is this what God actually said? You can't eat any of the trees of the garden? Now, the serpent's speech begins in a way which is designed to introduce confusion. God actually said this? His tactic was to cause doubt in the minds in the mind of the woman through asking a question which purposely misrepresents what God actually had said. Is it the case which, that God did not allow Adam Eve to eat of any of the trees? Is this actually what God had said to them? What the adversary has done is to question, right from the beginning, to question the goodness of God. He slyly indicates that God isn't good. Because... Because God is is withholding from you. He's keeping some good things from you. Satan focuses attention away from God's provision and towards God's prohibition. Remember, there was one tree in the midst of the garden which was solely God's. Satan takes God's command... And he refashions it for his own purpose. And beloved, this is what the adversary does. He takes the word of God and he twists it in order to deceive. And so the first mistake which the woman makes is her willingness to even speak to this creature. And then she compounds her mistake by then misrepresenting God's command. Just as the serpent had done, although she does not do so with any ill intent. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now remember, God's original command included a liberality. You could eat of all of the trees of the garden. Man was free to eat of all but one. She said that they, in fact, may eat of all the trees, but there was that one. But here the focus becomes really only the prohibition. And this is exactly what the enemy of God wanted and is, again, a tactic which is still used today. Satan has always attempted to get between the soul of man and God. He wishes to turn the heart of man away from his Creator, substituting his own lies for God's truth. And so Genesis 3 is a taste of how Satan operates He attacks the Word of God. He twists the Word of God. He seeks to turn the attention away from the goodness and generosity of God towards the ways in which God is somehow withholding from man. So here in verse 2 we see that Eve has fallen victim to his deception. She, in fact, has made the prohibition of God stronger. This is more apparent in the Hebrew. But she's made the prohibition of God stronger when she said that not only were they not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they weren't even allowed to touch it. Now, we don't know where that last part comes from. We don't know why that's added. That was certainly not part of the command which God had given. It could be Maybe that Adam had instructed her this way. Or Adam is the one who received the command prior to Eve being made. Perhaps she misunderstood the command. Perhaps she's trying to show deference to the command of God. However, touching was not part of the commandment eating was. Whatever the reason is, She reiterates the command with an an addition to the prohibition, and she repeats the threat, though without the urgency which God had given it. She omits the emphatic infinitive of God's command you shall surely die. And so, through now half truths, through denials, Satan has disparaged Eve's privileges. Remember, she was privileged. To be able to eat of all the trees of the garden. Now her privileges have been disparaged. And now the prohibition has been increased. And asking, did God really say that you can't eat of any of the trees? And then the threat is minimized from you shall surely die. And so immediately now the serpent contradicts God's word by stating that surely death is not what will come. Satan now sought to ease the woman's fears. Eating this fruit will not bring about death. You will surely not die. In fact, what he's saying, God has been lying to you. So God is not only not good, God is not only withholding from you, now Satan is accusing God of being a liar. The Lord's motive for giving the command is now challenged by the snake. How dare he? In a sense, withhold this from you. If the woman was having any second thoughts about eating, that is quickly overcome by the adversary as he gives his reasoning, which again calls into question God's motive. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now here we get to the crux of the matter. Satan is arguing that God is not good, that God has been withholden, that God is a liar, and now that God is selfish, that God is deceptive, manipulative, and is preventing man and woman from attaining all that they could be, that they should be equal with God, that they should be able to realize the fullness of their image bearing. The serpent is now making three counterclaims. First, man and woman will surely not die. Second, that their eyes will be opened. And this is a metaphor, by the way, for knowledge. They will know something that they did not previously know. And third, they will attain that which belongs only to God. They will know good and evil. They will be like God. If they would only eat of the forbidden fruit, then they would attain all of this. Oh, how glorious it may have seemed to them. They will no longer be held back from their true image-bearing. And God knows this. God's been withholding from them. And this is the serpent's argument. This is a classic line of reasoning for every nearly, every. This is the classic line of reasoning for nearly every every sin, is it not? Ah, but this is so good. God must not be telling me the truth. Now, there is a sense in which the serpent wasn't totally wrong. Of course, this is the way lies work, right? The serpent wasn't totally wrong, but he only provided half of the truth. It is true that when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did not immediately die. At least not physically. It is also true that they gained knowledge which they did not previously possess. Their eyes were opened, as it were, and they now knew something that they did not previously experience. They now knew good and evil. The serpent wasn't completely wrong. He just didn't tell them the whole truth. The serpent told them what they would gain, but he failed to tell them what they would lose. Though they would not die immediately, the man and the woman would experience death. Further, their relationship to God would be ruptured, and they would be expelled from the garden which is an indication of the looming death. Still further, their eyes would be opened. But what they saw, they did not wish to see. What they saw was their own nakedness. They saw their own exposure. This brought them to a place of disgrace and shame. They were burdened with guilt now. And finally, they became like God. They knew good and evil. They saw clearly evil defined in the world, and they saw that they themselves were evil in their deed. They also experienced isolation. They were cut off from life, which should have been theirs. And they had achieved wisdom, but this would be at the cost of death. Satan had told them only half the truth. So the temptation was perhaps too much to bear. Eve believed these half truths of the serpent over trusting in God. And so she makes the pragmatic decision, thinking, Ah, here is wisdom to be found. God has led me astray. But now I will be like Him. I will be equal with God. One complicated put it this way. What Adam and Eve sought from the tree of the knowledge was not philosophical or scientific knowledge, but practical knowledge, which would give them blessing and fulfillment. They were not seeking more information, but they had a hunger for power, which would come through knowledge. Knowledge which had the potential for evil, as well as for good. Now, at this point, we should be reminded that Adam had been commanded to work the garden and to keep it, or to guard the garden. Presumably, he was aware of Eve's conversation, if he wasn't there, immediately. But either way, he should have driven that snake out of the garden. Away with you. First Timothy tells us that Eve was deceived. This is the, this is the killer, right? Eve was deceived. Adam was not. No, Adam ate with a full knowledge of what he was doing. He understood right well that he was violating the very commandments of God, the commandments which he had heard with his own ears from the lips of God, as it were. The text says that to Eve, the forbidden fruit looked good to eat. Not good in an objective sense given by God, but good for what it might do for them. Verse 6, it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and was a desire to make one wise. There, there you have what, what they were after. And what had happened now then is they've twisted the definition of good. No longer is it good in the sense that God had said, it's now good for what I get out of it. And of course there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Is this not how modern man operates as well? Is it not the case our own day? Do we not see how those who are committed to unbelief and autonomy twist evil into good and good into evil? Isn't this the case that this this is true in our own hearts? Do we not have those conversations where we decide, ah, this is actually good for me. I'm the exception to the rule, see, Don't we do this? Is not the goal of modern man to find fulfillment within himself, to seek knowledge which brings personal power. This philosophy of life is declared in the public square all around us, isn't it? Sometimes it finds its way into the church also. Often it finds its way into our own hearts. Far from... In a sense, uh, standing in condemnation over Adam and Eve, we are no different, are we? In our day, meaning and value is not objectively determined by a good and holy law-giving God, but is subjective, determined by each individual person who is his own moral compass and determiner of what ought to be. Human beings have, since the fall, sought to throw off the so-called shackles of God, and have sought their own devices and fulfillment. This is the fallen nature of man. In the eating of the tree of the knowledge, Adam and Eve were rejecting God. They were seeking their own version of good. But when they did this, there was an immediate remorse, which is not always the case for people in our own day. And so it says after they ate, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Well, just as had been promised by the serpent. Their eyes were indeed opened, weren't they? Then they saw, and what they saw they did not like. They were now exposed, they were naked, they were full of shame. This is the irony of their actions. The knowledge of good and evil was not a neutral state where they could then sort of stand above the fray and judge good and evil as God does. No, they were now fully aware of their own action and they were embarrassed and ashamed because now they were naked. Adam and Eve were aware of their own guilt, their loss of innocence, and so they attempted, of course, to cover themselves over And so they got fig leaves and they sewed those together. Now consider that for a moment. That is absolutely ridiculous. You're supposed to understand it being ridiculous, because it is ridiculous. I mean, fig leaves are large, but they're not that large. And they're fragile. They're not going to do much good for very long. This is a great illustration, really, of the the futility of man's attempt to cover over his own sin. You and I are totally incapable of covering our sin, and yet, do we not attempt to do this very thing all the time? Don't we attempt to hide in our shame? How often it is that we attempt to conceal our guilt... We think that if other people don't know, if they cannot see our guilt, then it's hidden. And no one will ever know. No one will ever know what I've done. But the congregation of Jesus Christ know that it is not hidden. For not only do you know, and you still bear the guilt and the shame of what you've done, but God knows. For God knows your sin, and God knows my sin, and ultimately it is God himself. It is against God himself that we sin, and God will expose our sin, for he is light. We sin against God. uh, David declares this in Psalm 51 against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless. In your judgment, beloved, you and I cannot hide from God. We cannot conceal our sin. We cannot cover it up. We can't do enough good works to, oh, you know, overbalance it. All, all the various ways in which we try to deal with our own sin—you can't do it. Our sin will always find us out. Maybe not be immediate. But it will one day come to light, for God will shine His light on all of us. All of us will stand naked. The question is whether you will be ashamed or not. Will you be in Christ? Or will you be alone, exposed? And so the encouragement is to repent of your sin. Bring it before Christ. Do not become a prisoner of your own sin. Repent of your particular sins particularly and trust and rest in Christ Jesus who set you free. But what about the sins which may lead to further punishment in this world, you may ask? One may say, I could lose my job or I could go to jail if this particular sin is discovered. What about, what about that? So be it. There may need to be justice in this world, but your freedom is found in Christ. Repent and trust in your Savior. For the man and the woman, they attempted to hide their sin. And then, verse 8, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool, or in the garden, in the cool of the day, they hid themselves. Our text uh, says the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And and in some sense, this is actually an odd translation. Uh, But one that nearly every English translation uses. And perhaps it reflects an attempt to help a more modern audience understand what's happening. Uh, The word cool is actually the, the Hebrew word ruah, which literally means wind or spirit. So this is a time of the day that was breezy, or perhaps it was the time of the day when the Spirit would come. Either way, this refers to the time of day, that particular time of the day when the Lord God would come and visit His creation. You see, the Master Gardener had not abandoned His work. He has now come as a gentle father seeking out His children. And so He calls out to them, where are you? Where are you, children? Now, it is not that the Lord is unaware of where his rebellious children had hidden themselves. It's not that like God doesn't know where they are. In fact, there's a there's a sweetness to this. Even as the man and the woman have sinned, where are you? This whole interchange, starting in verse 9, has a pedagogical, that is, a teaching effect to it. God wants to teach something here. And so the Lord begins to question the man in a way which models true justice. The good king will not pass judgment without a careful inquiry. God is seeking for them to confess their own guilt. And so he says, where are you? And so the man responds to God, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Of course, their hiding is itself an admission of guilt. Why would they hide otherwise? Why hide if you have nothing to hide from? And fear, this was also an admission of guilt. They knew they were guilty. When our actions are motivated by fear and not by faith, we're not living in the true fear of the Lord, that is reverence and honor for the Lord. So Adam hid himself because he was afraid, not of being without clothes, per se, but because he was afraid of God. He did not want to appear exposed before the holy God, for he is guilty of cosmic treason, and he knew it. So the man retreated into darkness. Is this what natural man does? Is this not what we all do? Do we not all seek to withdraw into the darkness? Lord, please don't look this way. You know what I've done. natural man seeks to retreat into the darkness because he hates the light. And God is light. And Christ came to expose the darkness and to chase it away with his light. And so verse 11, God responds to the man, Who, who told you you were naked? In, in these verses you'll know that there's an emphasis on the singular you. Who told you, Adam? The focus is on Adam, who had been, gi- been given the command of the garden. Now, re- remember, up to this point, we'd spent a lot of time talking about the things that Eve was doing, but ultimately, guess who was responsible for what had been done? It's Adam. Who told you, Adam, that you were naked? And the Lord then gets to the heart of the matter. He asks the question very directly. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now the crime which had been committed comes in a sharper focus. Now both of this and the previous question are rhetorical in nature. God already knows the answer. God had given a clear command concerning the tree from which they were not to eat. And the Lord here makes clear that He knows why it is that they're hiding and why it is that they're ashamed. God knows. They have defied His commandments. Adam is cornered, isn't he? He has violated God's law. He is guilty... Now, what Adam ought to do is fall on his knees and say, Lord, I have sinned against you. But that's not what he does. No, he he attempts still to retreat from this. In fact, he does what we would call blame-shifting. Verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Oh, Adam... By the way, can you not see yourself in this? Isn't this exactly what we do? I'm really not that guilty. It's it's this other one. In fact, Adam suggests there are two other guilty parties. He does this hoping that this would somehow get him off the hook. That he would be relieved of his own guilt. Now the first one he points to is the woman... She is the one who handed me the fruit. It is she who had been talking to the serpent. I was just following along. I mean, she handed it to me. I ate. I only took what she gave me, Lord. Now the second accusation, is, and this is really, if you think about it, much more serious The second accusation is actually against God Himself. It was the woman that you gave me, Lord. The woman was presented to Adam as a gift from God. She was bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But it was God who had done this. And so Adam is suggesting, Lord, you made a mistake. This is really your fault. If you hadn't given me this woman, none of this would have happened. The woman, he says, is the reason for his downfall, and God is the one who had given her to him. And so the real guilty party in all of this must be God Himself. Now, if you were to weigh out the words of Adam, they are truly incredible. Think about what He's doing. By shifting the blame, Adam was hoping to evade responsibility for his own independent actions. Naming the woman and God as the truly guilty parties. But what Adam is actually doing is showing his allegiance to Satan. Because what he's doing is distorting the truth. He's doing exactly what Satan had done earlier. He distorts the truth, he accuses God, and then he accuses God as well. Adam's response to God is the same as Satan God, you're not good. It's incredible. Later generations have attempted to make the same argument. This is why James writes in James chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Well, how does this happen? Well, James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Look at, Listen, pay attention to this. By his own desire. Who's responsible for your sin? It's not God, and it's not your neighbor, it's you. You are responsible for your own sin, for you are enticed by your own desire. God is light. He doesn't tempt man to sin. There is no evil in Him. God is the very definition of good. He is the standard of good. So the only one which Adam could blame for his falling into temptation is himself. He was Lord and enticed by his own desires. Adam wanted to be God. And beloved, this is true for you and me too. This is at the root of all our sins. Your sin my sin. We can't blame others for our sin. We can't blame God. Really, truly, we can't even blame Satan. Satan is a tempter, but he doesn't force you to sin. Ultimately, we have only ourselves to blame for our own actions and our sins, and we are the guilty party. We carry our own guilt. No one else And God will judge based on that. But this is the good news of the Gospel, isn't it? Because Jesus takes what belongs rightly to you, and He takes it upon Himself. For you. That's incredible. We'll see later on that as God hands out judgment on the man... That he'll have no, he'll hear nothing of the excuses. In fact, he uses some of the excuses which man makes as protesta- uh, protestations as part of his judgment on him. Well, after the speech of Adam, God then turns to the woman, and like the man, she too attempts to shift blame elsewhere. When he says, "What is this that you have done?" And the woman says, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." The woman had become a partner in crime. But in her case, rightly claiming that she was a victim of deception. She was deceived. She had been tricked by the serpent. And it is here that the inquiry ends and the judgment would begin. And that is something that we will look at uh, next time. Well, the fall of mankind this sin was the great catastrophe which has plunged the whole of creation into a state of sin and misery. You want to know why things are the way they are? This is it. Sin came into the world through one man, and, and through sin, death, and death spread to all men because all men sin. Romans chapter 5. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 again reminds us that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was our first federal head. Through Adam, he sinned, we sinned. Death and sin spread because we inherit a sin nature from Adam. But there is another who has come. There's another who has come who has brought the grace of God to undeserving sinners. The free gift of salvation offered through him abounds for the many who trust and rest in him. His obedience has secured for his people eternal life. Where Adam succumbed to temptation, the Lord Jesus Christ did not. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 reminds us that Jesus is a high priest who was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Temptation illustrated for us in Matthew chapter 4, where Satan comes to him in the wilderness, just as he did with Eve, determined to undermine the Word of God. But Jesus doesn't fall for that like we do. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, has secured an eternal redemption, making peace with God by the blood of His cross. And He invites us to trust in Him and in His salvation. And He calls you and I to repent of our sin, to no longer hide in the shadows, to no longer attempt to clothe ourselves with our fig leaves, if you will, but to come to Him, for He has covered your sin. He has paid the penalty He has set you free and made you a child of God and an heir. And we'll see this. Immediately after his children rebelled against him in the garden, God sought to rescue his sons. Immediately. He was going to rescue his children. And so Genesis chapter 3 then sets the stage for the divine drama which is unfolding in history. But it also shows us why our hearts react the way they do. Why we too attempt to hide our sin. Why we experience shame. It also reveals our own desire to be like God. And so, dear congregation, Christ invites you to examine your hearts. To fall to your knees in repentance, just as Adam should have done. He calls you to to freedom in Him. And when He calls us, and when we are gathered, we're then to rejoice as people in the kingdom, for the sinner has been set free. For not only are we those who come to the King with tears in our eyes and heaviness in our hearts, but we are embraced. By a gentle loving father who says come into the banquet for I have sought you to be my own. Jesus says in Luke 15 that the whole host of heaven will celebrate when the lost sinner when a lost sinner repents. And you if you're in Christ you too will join in that celebration. Rejoice for Christ has set you free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your gospel. That even as we read in, from Genesis chapter 3, the bad news, the fact that in, that in the heart of man is bound up a heart of rebellion because our first father ate of the tree. And that we, like him, are guilty of cosmic treason. And yet, Christ has set us free. That Christ is our new federal head. Who has made all things good, and we look forward to that day in the new heavens, new earth, when we will be in glory. We will sup. We will celebrate the sinners who have repented and returned to the loving Father. Oh, we look forward to that day. We rejoice in that day. We thank you, and we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.